It's a post-MLB trade deadline edition of The Nail. We will have Mike Hattery, a contributor for Waiting for Next Year, on to talk about today's Indians trade in a minute. But first, Travis's ride for Pelotonia is coming up this weekend. So if you're still looking to donate, get it done here in the next few days. Of course, all the proceeds raised are going to benefit cancer research. It's a super easy process to donate. We hope you'll uh, think about kicking in a few bucks. Uh, I did it a few weeks ago. Go to pelotonia.org slash Travis or click the banner across the desktop version of our website, thenailpodcast.com. Again, Pelotonia.org slash Travis P-E-L-O-T-O-N-I-A dot org slash Travis Uh Or check out the banner on our website. All right, MLB trade deadline. Let's get to it. The nail in the coffin! Welcome to the Nail. We are recording on Monday night, a few hours past the MLB trade deadline. Trav, how's it going? Not too bad, my man. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing well. A little bit better than the Indians right now. Uh, down five nothing as we uh, start recording here. But uh, you know, I uh, figure this would uh, probably be a good time to regroup with uh, with the deadline passing this afternoon. And uh, we are also joined by Mike Hattery. Mike writes for the uh, uh, website Waiting for Next Year. Uh, does a great job writing about the Indians, and we're super happy to have him on tonight. Mike, welcome. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. All right, so let's cut right to the chase. Tribe, uh, th- their move today was reacquiring Joe Smith, the uh, the reliever. Uh, good deal, bad deal? How do you feel about it? I like it. I'm, I'm really torn, to be honest. I think, you know, for the Indians in the short term, it's a really good deal. This is a bullpen that needed some help, needed some depth. Uh, and Smith certainly provides that. You know, he's an upgrade over... Uh, some and I think he can help you rest Shaw and Allen a little bit, which you're going to need for the postseason. On the other hand, you know I think Toronto did really well here. I I really like Thomas Pannone, who I uh, profiled earlier this season. Uh, he was sort of the centerpiece, and Samad Taylor is really interesting as well. You know, a toolsy guy already contributing in low, you know, in low A, which is pretty impressive. So I think you know both sides did pretty well. Uh, and for the Indians, I think one of the larger questions is if they're going to keep Smith around after this season as well. I'm I'm a little surprised. Um, you know, for the most part this year, I feel like the bullpen has been considered one of the best bullpens in baseball. Um, but we've seen a couple guys uh, scuffling at least a little bit. And then we had the, the talk about Andrew Miller. Uh, what was that, like a week or two ago, talking about a hot spot on his pitching hand. Um, it can a need can pop up there pretty quickly, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think both Miller and Allen in the last week had their velocity down sort of an alarming rate. Uh, both of them lost one or two ticks. Uh, and, you know, I think Brian Shaw is really solid, but uh, he's, he's not perfect. He's probably a league average reliever and, and adding depth to that is good. And I, I think you're right. I mean, 
the top end of that bullpen is one of the three best in baseball. Um, but I think the Indians just want to sort of protect those arms as much as they're worried about deepening the bullpen, which is, you know, Cody Allen has the fifth most appearances in the last five years in baseball. Shaw is up, on, is up in front of Allen on that usage list. So I think finding someone else who can eat high leverage innings and protect those guys a little bit is, is a big key. It, it's sort of an underwhelming move. Yeah, it's solid and, you know, it helps them out in an area that, that they could use it, but are you, is anyone satisfied with what they did basically standing pat and getting one reliever? You know, I don't, I don't know. I think this was a really tough deadline for them to manage because I don't know how the pieces really matched up. Um, I think the strongest argument you'd make would be that the Indians should have moved on that third rotation spot. On the other hand, Salazar has been really good his last two starts. Um, Sonny Gray and Yu Darvish were the only two guys on the market. Um, and I think with that sort of limited market, obviously the Cubs paid a ton for Quintana. Uh, I don't like Sonny Gray that much. I think he's ultra risky. He has some serious arm health issues, and I don't particularly trust his arsenal long term. So. I definitely think it's disappointing, but I don't think there was a lot of opportunity out there this year compared to other seasons. Yeah, it kind of felt like they were basically banking on um, Salazar being, and and they used this term, and obviously it's not the same thing, but they sort of considered him their their draft uh, deadline pickup because he was out for a little bit, and they're hoping that he gets back to what he was. as far as consistency and reliability, that seems to be the biggest thing with him. You never really know which guy you're going to get. Is Should we expect to see them um, maybe pursue one of those those weird post-deadline deals that are a little trickier to work out? Um, should we still expect them to maybe try to do something there, or do we think that maybe they're going to they're gonna stand pat and they're just going to roll with what they got right now? Yeah, I think a waiver wire deal is possible. I think you could see Lance Lynn with the Cardinals, who's an expiring contract, or Verlander. But I think, I mean, last year, God bless him, the Indians were starting Josh Tomlin in Game 2s and Trevor Bauer in Game 3s of playoff series. And I think in many ways, the Indians feel a lot more comfortable because neither of those guys, barring injuries to Carrasco, Salazar, and then Clevenger, I don't think... I don't think either of those guys would be starting a playoff game necessarily. So in some ways, they're just a lot more well-positioned rotation-wise once they get in the playoffs. So, And I, I also think that if you get a Lynn, and, and even you know Verlander's off the table because of the money, I just don't think there's a guy on the waiver wire who's going to be a big enough improvement over Salazar if Salazar was healthy, or Clevenger, maybe, that really would be worth the Indians moving for. How much do you think the way the Indians have played in the last couple weeks dictated their philosophy and their approach to this trade deadline? Because they, I I mean, I know they lost on Sunday afternoon and they're, they're scuffling a bit again tonight, but before that it was nine wins in a row. It was the best baseball we've seen them play all year. And you start to kind of hope like, Hey, maybe they're going to get on a run here. This is finally going to start clicking the way we've expected all year. But I mean, we've got a pretty sizable body of evidence from the rest of the season where um i mean the indians looked like they had the pieces but just were not quite firing on all cylinders and i just wonder had that run not taken place and the the 
10 to 12 days or whatever leading up to the deadline if they maybe get more aggressive um, coming into this afternoon. Yeah, I think that's I think there's a really good chance that's true. Um, I think definitely if they were coming into today, maybe a couple of games back of Kansas City um, or in a different position, I think we could have seen them be a lot more aggressive. Um, but I think this is also a team where I really buy into some of the advanced metrics on things like Pythagorean runs or or base runs or third order win percentage, which suggests that the Indians have sort of outplayed what their record is currently. But even if that's not the case, I think the reality with this team is there's a ton of talent and they just have to start executing. I mean, this team is better than a team who's even gone through that nine game win streak and is more than 10 games over 500. This is a really talented roster. And it's actually one that's sort of hard to supplement because there aren't a lot of places where you can make really huge value gains over the current starter at that position. I'm really glad you mentioned that that magic phrase of advanced statistics. Hold that thought. I want to come back to it later. But in the meantime, um, getting back to Joe Smith, do we? you had kind of touched on this when we first got started here. Are you expecting him to kind of split Shaw's role with what he's been doing now? Or or is there a different way you see him being used? I hope it's splitting Shaw's role. I think that makes the most sense to me. To be honest, Nick Goody, I think, has been really good this year. You know, I think they basically now have, you know, three really good right-handed relievers who you can get at plus Miller. So I think you have, you know, a six, seven, eight, nine you can run with. Um, and they're obviously not going to need that every night. I mean, this is a pitching staff where Kluber and Carrasco get deep often. Sometimes Bauer gets deep. So I think, I think, yeah, I think Smith may eat into some Shaw innings. And I think he may eat into some Allen innings where Allen's coming in in a tied game in the ninth. Maybe that's Joe Smith coming in in a tied game in the ninth uh, instead of Allen. So those sorts of things, I think he'll just soak up some of those innings in high leverage sort of helping Tito to be more flexible with how he deploys Miller and Allen. Do you think, and I, I heard this mentioned, um, or saw it mentioned a little bit, I was sort of under the impression that they wanted to go out and get a left uh, a lefty for the bullpen, because obviously they have Miller, but other than that, they're pretty righty-heavy. Um, do you see sort of any issue there with the fact that really Miller is the only, um, really the only lefty they have out of the pen? Yeah, definitely. There's a balance issue. And actually, one of the really weird things, I know, I don't know if you know who Kevin Dean is, but he's all over Twitter. He's an Indians Twitter guy. And he's he's been a huge, huge fan of Kyle Crockett. I think as a loogie, he works. Right now, we're trying Tyler Olson, which I don't expect to succeed in any shape or form. Um, but, you know, one of the positives is while Smith isn't awesome against left-handed hitters, he's decent. He's pretty competent. He can pitch to both sides. Allen's sort of the same. So the loogie problem is is definitely an issue, um, but there's it, it can be covered. You know, it can be manipulated. And, and if they want to try somebody like Morimondo or Merritt or Crockett, I mean, they have three guys in AAA who all probably project as, as left-handed guys at the back of the bullpen. I think we're going to see that when the roster expands to 40 in September, and you might see that guy on a playoff roster. All right, I gotta I gotta play dumb here for a minute. Uh, explain for me what Lugie means. Sorry, left-handed one-out guy. Okay, just comes into the matchups. <laughs> I thought it was something along those lines, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure, and I didn't. I, I was like, I'm not sure how much more we're gonna get into that 
that phrase here the rest of the night, so I better uh, cover my bases <laughs> now. <laughs> um, the Royals, what? Uh, wh- where do they come from? I-, I was not expecting much out of them, and it seems like uh, they- they've been just scorching hot here for a while. And uh, do you expect them to uh, continue to push the Indians the rest of the way here? No, but I didn't expect them to be pushing them now, so I don't know how valuable my opinion is. Um, you know, they just we're just in this sort of scene where I think the Indians, if if you're a metrics-based person or embrace some of them, you know, there's this concept of cluster luck, which is oftentimes batting with runners in scoring position. A lot of it's dro- driven by just sort of randomness or variance. Um, and so the Royals are some a team that sort of extremely uh, outperforms and the Indians have been one that's underperformed that. And that's sort of made it. So these teams are currently really close in the standings, whereas maybe projection of true talent would suggest that the Indians should be eight games better than them right now. Um, And if you don't want to, you know, approach advanced metrics, then you say, Oh, these teams are similarly talented. I just don't think that's true. That rotation is awful. Uh, compared to the Indians and the Indians pen is better and the Indians lineup is similarly talented. So I think, you know, I don't expect them to hang around. I don't expect them to to hang on with Jason Vargas, Jason Hamill uh, logging major innings, but I didn't expect them to be around right now. So I can't tell you. Well, these two teams have what about 10 games left against each other the rest of the season. Yeah, I mean, we're going to see them settle the score, certainly. Can't ask for much more than that. That's uh, that's what you want, I think. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens there. What uh, what else did you take away from the trade deadline? Um, what teams, uh, especially in terms of the contenders around baseball, um, what did you see that you liked? What did you see that surprised you? Um, it's a really good question. I think I liked. I honestly more I really liked how the White Sox handled this deadline in terms of flipping for top end talent and tanking for the next couple of years. Um in terms of the top end teams, I think I'm not in love with any of their moves. Uh the Yankees certainly went out and got Sonny Gray, who is sort of the darling of this market, but I think in, in other midseason markets he's not as sexy of a target. Probably like the Dodgers the best. I mean, they're a team that gets to take a flyer on, you know, Darvish hasn't had a great year. They're an elite team. Uh, and and you could look like, you know, you're going to see Darvish as your three starter with Kershaw, Kershaw at the top of the rotation in, in a playoff series, which is very daunting. In other regards, I think Houston is actually one that didn't get enough done. Um, Their bullpen has allowed something like 37 runs in their last 33 innings. It's been a major struggle for them. They have Keuchel, who's been hurt on and off, and McCullers. Uh, Correa is certainly going to be out for another month or so. So I think while Houston has a massive lead and will certainly make it into the playoffs, uh, that roster is just not as daunting as it was uh, maybe a month and a half ago. All right, back to the Indians. Um, now that it seems like they're pretty set with who they're going to have for the rest of the year, any guys that you see that maybe haven't been used a bunch that we should expect to see used a little more, um, or vice versa, guys that maybe you've been seeing quite a bit that you think will probably sort of fade, fade back a little bit. 
Um, I think we're going to see, and he's been awesome. Austin Jackson has been awesome. Um, but you know, it's, I think partially he's been awesome because they've been able to hit him against left-handed pitching 95% of the time. Uh, so I think when you have Chisholm Hall come back, I think the biggest reduction in playing time is going to happen to Jackson, um, which I think is good. You know, Chisholm Hall can rake against right-handed pitching and Jackson against left-handed pitching. And, and, uh, so I think that playing time impact happens um otherwise i think you know it depends how kipnis looks when he comes back if he how healthy he looks or else you could see urshela gonzalez still playing a decent amount depending on where they deploy ramirez um but i'd like to see a more stable game plan for deploying ramirez at this point um either (laughs) i would rather see them just start gonzalez or urshela basically every day and leave ramirez in one spot because uh, I think Ramirez alternating positions nearly daily is is not great for his defense, and he's one of your most important offensive players. So um, I think we sort of they... saw one of the uh, one of the side effects of that today. He had a real bad error in the in a second or third inning here that led to three runs for Boston. I think, like yeah. you said, that stability and just that comfort level being in the same position every day is kind of a big thing. Even though he's he's been pretty good at both positions, um, it's for consistency and stability you just kind of want to see him comfortable in that spot that he's going to be in totally i mean this is the guy who's going to play the most games on the team he's going to have played all over the field and he's going to have been you know the guy who's carried you offensively i think i think they could they would do well to uh protect him a little more defensively do we have an uh, an eta on when we might see chisholm hall back i, I think kipnis is getting pretty close he's on a rehab assignment now right but chisholm hall is a little bit further out right Chisholm Hall, they keep giving us pretty murky reports from what it sounds like to me. I mean, the only certainty was that it would occur after August 1st, and we've heard the multiple weeks phrase with Chisholm Hall, but I haven't heard any clarifying uh, number on when the rehab will start and and when we can expect him back in Cleveland. So I think, you know, it's still a situation where, you know, now it's at least a week plus, and and it could be more than that. That's frustrating. He was having a hell of a year. Yeah, he was. Hmm. Yeah, he was finally right. having the breakout year that we've been lamenting that he that he couldn't seem to find for the last, I don't know, this feels like forever. Chisholm Hall is such an enigma. I I swear, his his skills change every year. He becomes a really good defender and right, then he adds power, then he doesn't have power, then he hits for average. It's, it's frustrating. Do you have any sort of a feel, just kind of turning our attention toward the rotation? Um. I mean, you're you're pretty locked in at the top. You've got you know, Kluber and Carrasco, and then you've got all these other guys that seem like they're they're making a case right now. I mean, Salazar especially has come out, uh, coming off uh, you know his uh, his rehab, um, just looking great. Um, we've seen flashes from the other guys, and um, if you had to take a guess, everybody being healthy, I know obviously Josh Tomlin's hobbled here a little bit, but Everybody being healthy, who would you make like a game three starter in a series right now? Everyone's healthy, absolutely. Danny Salazar. Right. Um, I just think the talent gap, or this, yeah, the talent gap is huge. And I think one of the things we also haven't talked about from his first two starts back 
um, is one of the things we've always said. Even though Salazar's had you know really good seasons as a starter in the past, the two years before this one were really good, is that he started throwing his slider a lot more frequently in the last two starts, and it's looked really devastating. And so Salazar finally having a third pitch that he can use more than 5% of the time it just really raises that ceiling. So if I get to have them all healthy, uh, it's Salazar, and I don't blink. Fair enough. Trev, uh, more questions that you have for Mike? Yeah, I'm going to jump into the uh, to the analytics stuff that you kind of deferred on, Tino. All right. Um, no, I, good. I, I, this is a discussion you and I have been wanting to have for literally months. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to preface this, and then I'll let you kind of get into the the questions that you wanted to ask, but um, now, Mike, I, I'll just tell you, you know, reading some of your stuff and, you know, you've kind of casually dropped some numbers in here as just as we're having this conversation, but, you know, it's kind of what I've enjoyed about your work that, you know, you're, you're writing uh, for WFNY. Um, can you kind of tell me like, how, how did, is that something that you've kind of made a conscientious effort in, in your work to try to, differentiate yourself because you know we know there's like so many people out there that that cover this stuff and um you know if you want to stand out as uh as a writer i, I think you've got to kind of develop a niche is that something that you have made a conscious effort to really embrace yeah absolutely I, so i wrote at indians baseball insider like five years ago so there's a little bit of a story and and i wrote and I wrote something sort of poor and I also just hadn't really encountered analytics at that time. And I got just brutalized in the message board. So that's the first thing that kind of made me think about it um, and transitioning, but it's a tool to differentiate. And it's also something where I'm more comfortable. You know, I think um, I'm a law student. Uh, I do a lot of technical writing uh, at the jobs that I'm at. And so I have a lot more comfort doing um, a more technical data analytical approach than I do as a storyteller. Uh, to be honest, part of it's just, I like writing about baseball and I'm not a good storyteller. And so for me, a good way to write that I'm comfortable with is I get to write about you know analytics and, and try and solve puzzles sometimes. And, and that's really fun for me uh, compared to trying to tell a story, which I'm not particularly good at. All right, Trev, I know you got some questions, fire away. Yeah, my first one is how like, so obviously the analytics stuff has become much more prevalent in baseball. Um, I think it's mostly amongst the younger generation who are just finding these new ways to sort of analyze performance and, and things along those lines. And there's obviously been a lot of pushback from sort of the older traditional baseball crowd. Um, now, some of those folks just really love baseball and any other way that they can look at it, they, they enjoy. Um, when you watch like an Indians game and and you hear Jensen Lewis so like passionately against certain things for in my opinion, it just seems like it's because he doesn't really understand what they mean. But when you see these folks who are so like strongly against something that to you is really just sort of a more creative and, and you know, new way to look at the game, I guess, how do you how do you feel about that? What do you what do you think that actually means ultimately? Been a lot more poised about about putting up with it. Um, no, uh, I think you know. I think the thing that bothers me is when it's a, a shtick. To me, it feels like for guys like Jensen um, and a few others, it's sort of a shtick to draw in controversy and you know 
raise their profile. And so, you know, in that way, it frustrates me a little bit because I think Jensen's a pretty bright guy. Uh, I think part of it is he just uses it sort of as a as an argument ground to to sort of draw Twitter his way at times. Um, I think, you know, I really value it. I mean, my my dad was the person who made me a baseball fan. Uh, he's a 66-year-old with a PhD and a master's in economics, loves data and hates the way I write because he hates data and baseball. It's just not... He doesn't like it. It's not aesthetically pleasing to him. Um, and so that's always fun to hear. But uh, I think part of it is it's just unsettling and not satisfying for people who really just like to separate uh, their analytical selves from just enjoying something they love. Uh, and I understand that. I don't, I don't have anything against that. People who are analysts who do that, it drives me insane. It's, to me, it's just not... Ex- not particularly acceptable, but that's and I think I think it's important to point out here. You know, you guys had both mentioned Jensen Lewis by name, and he actually it was a, a Twitter beef that he got in with some fans back in the springtime. It was late in the game on a Friday night. Um, I just happened to be, you know, kind of I was I was like half awake when I was watching it. It was a late game, and he was like pretty much openly mocking fans about. A launch angle and a, an exit velocity and a couple other things and um that was the the exchange that kind of got the wheels turning in my head about why we should talk about this on the podcast and i've been waiting to have just the right guest on to have this conversation but i want to be clear about this he's not the only person that does that and i and i and i don't want this to be like the let's dump on jensen lewis hour because you know he's not here to defend himself um oh, certainly but but as a <laughs> As Indians he's, fans, he's certainly the most visible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but I would also say I don't know that he's necessarily the only one on Indians broadcast that that bring that approach. But, um, you know, I, I think it's just it's important to say it's just one example, and um, he's he's not alone in that. The thing that I think about this that is that makes it kind of a catch twenty two is, um, I you know. Like Mike, I think about like you know fans like your dad who you know don't want to um you know they they don't want to be assaulted by by a bunch of numbers and a bunch of data when they're watching baseball and I think you know especially with baseball tending to skew older in its audience overall I think that is still probably a sizable portion of the viewing audience and when you're you know trying to broadcast a game. Um, I think the challenge becomes presenting that sort of information without alienating your viewers. You see where I'm going with that? Because like to me, the best approach would be to make that information accessible. And I think that's something that you do a good job of in your writing, but I think even needs to be like, you know, simplified a lot more than that when you're like broadcasting on STO or ESPN or, or one of these other uh, stations. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I think it really can be, especially some of the frontier stuff. You know, I don't I don't really care to hear them talk about war and I don't need stuff like that, but I think there's really cool things that you can do every day as a broadcaster. One of them being, you know, look at the pitch usage rates, you know, 
of your opposing starter and your own starter and look at those things. And you don't have to talk about pitch rates. You don't have to talk about strikeout rates on those pitches, but it helps you identify those pitches. You can give a really nice introduction about what he's going to lean on in certain counts. And I think that would, you know, make for a much more prepared broadcast and they don't really have to use the word analytics at all. So I, I definitely agree. I think, integrating it is really tough and i think people who want to hear somebody quote wrc plus or ops or war on a telecast you know i don't i don't think that's necessary i think it just needs to inform the broadcast a little more in terms of just having more information to to put out to the fan are there any particular broadcasters whether it's locally or uh, you know what i take that back i'm not even going to just limit it to broadcasters but beat writers and either specific to the team or just that cover mlb in general anybody that's in the traditional media right now that you see doing a really good job of this yeah i think i think jonah carey does an awesome job i guess maybe he's not traditional media let me let me give you a better answer you know truthfully I think Zach Meisel does an awesome job on the beat. Um, and he's someone who was challenged on analytics in the past, I know, and some people irritated him. But Zach does a really great job of, of bringing in sort of the concepts of, of sabermetrics and analytics and not complicating things too much. And, and it's really impressive. And on a larger sale, I'd say Tom Verducci, um, when he does broadcasts, is, is outstanding. You can tell he's reviewing a lot of uh, data, um, but he's not spitting any of it out. He's using it to sort of guide how he discusses players, and, and I love that. Verducci is super interesting to me because he you know, was, for a couple of years there, the number one analyst for Fox doing the World Series, and I think they've got him back to work in the, the dugout and – you know, kind of working on their number two crew now in the booth. But, um, you know, those are jobs that traditionally have gone to former players. And to get somebody with no real playing experience in the majors uh, calling a a World Series game like that, um, incredibly rare. So um, I think that's pretty cool, personally, as somebody that's able to uh, kind of carve out that niche for themselves and, and separate their work that way. I do too. I think it's, I think it's awesome. It is, you know, as you pointed out, it's so rare and and not just, I mean, we almost never see it happen with, you know, the team specific coverage. Uh, so that to happen on a national stage, you know, with Saturday night or Sunday night baseball or, or a playoff game is, is really cool. And I think, I think he's a great example of how much potential, um, you know, some, you know, just writers and analysts have to fill that role as compared to players. Not that players are bad, some are awesome, but I think, you know, we could be more balanced with those guys in the booth and, and it would be really positive. Cool. Trav, what are you thinking over pet, there? Pet peeve of mine, and this is like the most basic thing ever. I just had a discussion with someone the other day about it. Is there a more meaningless stat in all of sports than wins for a pitcher? Uh, no, probably not. I was talking to a guy and we were talking about Bauer. He's like, yeah, but his record's okay. I was like, record in baseball is the dumbest thing anyone could ever bring up to support. Like, I mean, yeah, there's certain plateaus, I guess, for wins that are sort of incredibly impressive that you have to be a pretty damn good pitcher to reach. But for the most part, it doesn't mean shit, right? Yeah, it's worthless. I mean, I think it's fun in the sense that it's like a collectible. It's a it's a tallying stat. So in some ways, at the end of the year, 
it, it can reflect guys who are really durable and pitch a lot of innings. So if you interpret like wins and losses in that sense, uh, it can be useful, but in the sense that it, you know, the win relates it all to a, a pitcher's skill, uh, is, is just not a strong correlation. Kind of no, funny, I, mean, I think, to look at these stats that were sort of the be-all, end-all not that long ago as to how good a guy was. Um, average, obviously, for a long time was, seemed like that was the that was really all anybody looked at to determine how good a guy was. Um, and maybe like those power numbers, but how they've started to develop things a little bit more and they look more analytically at those specific things and, you know, break it down a little bit more to really analyze a guy's performance as opposed to win and win loss, which is clearly just an entire team thing. How did the team do when you pitched for the most part? Yeah, I think one of the coolest things about baseball that we really struggle to do in other sports is that you have so many individual or discrete events that each individual player partakes in in baseball, you know, these individual events that they control specifically. And so in baseball, we have an awesome opportunity to get really sort of granular um, and detailed with how much we understand about each player because they're easily separated and, and not always as mechanized as, you know, football where you have 11 players and the success of a play relies on a significant portion of all 11 fulfilling their task. All right. This has been good stuff. Trav, did you have more questions for Mike? Uh, no, not really. I think there's probably a fair amount of people that listen to this that are in the camp of not necessarily not liking analytics, but just not really diving into it. Um, so if you were to give sort of the layman um, something very basic, you know, that, that would make sense to just anybody, um, something to look at or maybe one of those stats that that's out there and a lot of people don't necessarily know what it means, but you think it's actually a pretty good indicator of, of something. What would that be? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the coolest, I mean, there are a lot of different, you know, there's tons of different ways, but there's this thing called FIP, uh, which is fielding independent pitching. I think it's a really cool uh, statistic because it tries to separate um, the things a pitcher can control from the things a pitcher can't control. Um, it pulls out, you know, a pitcher can generally control their walks, their strikeouts, um, and, and in some sense they have contact management or home runs allowed skilled. And I think I really appreciate that's that because I think it cuts to the root of a pitcher pretty quickly, whereas ERA can get fooled uh, in, in pretty small samples. So I think that's one where um, it really points to how does this pitcher separated from his defense. It isn't a perfect stat, um, but it's just a little better than ERA, um, and I really appreciate that. All right. So everybody listening, that's your that's your homework. Go study up on uh, on FIP because that's uh, it's a good one for you. But no, Trev, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I think that's something that even you and I kind of find ourselves in a, in a little bit of I don't want to say no man's land, but just trying to figure out what, what the right balance is for us. Cause like you said, I, I think people, and at least I know my personal philosophy is like, I certainly respect the value of this information. And like, I'm super interested in this conversation that we're having right now. Um, even if I don't totally have a, a full grasp of, of, you know, 
all the numbers that are out there and available now that you might not have been having access to 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and uh, I, the one thing I do know is I certainly hope that the Indians front office, um, actually, you know, what, let, let me ask you this, Mike, how much do you, do you think advanced metrics and, and things like this and some of the stuff that you're discussing here, how, how much do the Indians um, look at these things? And do you find where, where do you think they would fit into the picture in terms of Major League Baseball? Are they uh, a team that's more analytics driven, less so? Um, what do you think? Um, I think generally they're considered one of the more progressive front offices in the game in terms of the use of analytics. I mean, if you if you go back to the sort of uh, pre Shapiro Hart era, you know, one of the things Shapiro helped build before he became GM was something called Diamond View. Um, which was at the time the gold standard and sort of uh, individual player databases and storing scouting reports combined with um, some, you know, early advanced metrics. So the unions were a real leader at the, at the front end. And and I think really, if you talk to people near the organization, it seems they remain. So Um, they're, they're pretty dynamic and, and they've hired a lot of guys from baseball prospectus and other forward leaning sites um, who are now in their baseball ops department. So I think compared to Major League Baseball, they're probably one of the five to 10 most uh, progressive teams in how they um, integrate analytics. Well, seems like it's been paying off for the most part, uh, given uh, what we've seen on the field in the last couple of years. So um, that's encouraging. Yeah, it doesn't hurt. all right boys um i think that's probably a good stopping point uh trev anything else no i think that's good um i'll admit full disclosure i find i find analytics very like helpful when i'm watching a game to sort of understand um how certain guys do when they're explained to me i don't dive into them a ton um i don't understand what they all mean but when i see them i think um, it's kind of nerdy, I guess, but in a way, I think it is a way for baseball to sort of make the game a little more interesting. Um, probably to the younger generation who seem to be the ones that are jumping into that type of stuff. Um, because it, it really does put it in more of a, I think when you watch, like you said earlier, it, pretty much every play in baseball, um, there's individuals doing things. It's not, I don't think there's nearly as much team aspect of it as people are used to in like uh, basketball and football. So I think when you can sort of look at individual guys and, and there's, there's pretty much a stat for everything at this point. Um, it makes it a little bit easier to easier while maybe a little more confusing, but a little bit easier to um, follow along with how a certain guy is doing as opposed to just looking at those same two or three stats that we're so used to for all the years. I would piggyback onto that by saying I think it's really kind of fascinating that we can have a way to look at a baseball game so differently now when it, for all intents and purposes, is pretty much the same game way that the game was played 115 years ago. Um. So, I don't know. Just something to think about, I guess. No, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Mike, this has been really good stuff, man. I really appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I had, I had an absolute blast. All right, give people your your uh, your Twitter handle. Oh, I'm, I'm at Snarky Hat Man, but I'm not That's... as grumpy as I used to be. 
<laughs> I I like the Twitter handle, so I, I wanted to get you to, to to drop that in there. So thank you for doing that. And uh, now we uh, we might have to have you on here again. This is uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, oh, you could that'd be wonderful. <laughs> awesome. All right, you can uh, you can read Mike uh, his work on uh, waiting for next year's uh, website there, and um, he's uh, at Snarky Hatman on Twitter. As for us, if this is your first time checking us out, uh, if you haven't done so, make sure you go subscribe. We are on Apple Podcasts, so hit that podcast app on your phone. Uh, search for the nail in the coffin. Uh, you can bring up uh, our episodes there and uh, hit the subscribe button. We're also on uh, Google Play and Stitcher. And go like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Nail Podcast. And uh, if you ever want to catch up with any of our old episodes, you can stream all of them on our website, thenailpodcast.com. Our thanks again to Mike Hattery for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Um, we're going to be back next week, I think, with uh, something a little bit different, but uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, going to take a departure from uh, the usual uh week in Cleveland sports craziness, but uh, with everything else that's been going on lately, I think it's uh, time for a little uh, something, a uh, little change up. So look forward to that. But uh, in the meantime, for Travis Julie, I'm Tom Valentino. It's been the nail in the coffin and we will talk to you again soon. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with Breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with Breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with Breslow the business of sports betting podcast